Welcome back to episode 18 of Insecurity. This episode, we discuss Max's recent trip to the CanSec West. Send your feedback to feedback at in-security.org. You can leave comments on our website at in-security.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. My name is Matt. And my name is Max. How you doing this week, buddy? I'm doing good, man. So what's news? What's exciting? Well, I'm back home, back in Toronto area, after my lovely visit out there. It was so nice to see you. How are you adjusting back to to winter? It's not bad. Actually, it was uh, when I got back, there was barely any snow left. And now it's just freezing rain. And it's supposed to snow tomorrow. Well, that's great news. So ask ask me next week. Right. So far, the uh, digging out of the window well has been achieving what it was set out to do and i'm not having a flooded basement anymore excellent yes pretty happy about that we recently put out episode 16 where we're talking about how my basement was flooded and seeing as this might be episode 17 or 18 who Who knows knows? (laughs) so it was really good to see you out here we uh everyone out here hopes that you visit more often yeah thanks i try to find a way to make that possible i enjoyed it a lot too but i guess it's your turn to come out this way yeah that sounds unlikely unlikely well come it's on. still winter out there i know but you know spring is it oh let's date this episode spring's tomorrow is it and it is too most excellent and then the day after that is summer or something like that so we'll see so as far as things of mild interest go we went to the the TED event. It's now in full swing here in Vancouver. And we went to see the art installation that they had. They have built a giant art installation that is strung up between buildings. And it's called Skies Painted with Unnumbered Sparks. And it's an interactive exhibit wherein you can control it with your cell phone. And it's wow. meshing and netting that's um, that gets lit up at night. It was very cool. Sounds very cool. I wish you had showed that to me when I was out there. It wasn't there when you were. Ah, I'm just trying to bust your chops a little bit. Right, right. We got new toilets yeah. today. For some reason, our apartment decided to install new toilets for everybody. That's fantastic. Yes. I was thinking that your current toilet was a little wobbly and small. Yeah, I'm going to try and avoid toilet humor. Let's move on to the next topic. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I, I saw a little bit about the um, TED Expo that's going on there in Vancouver. I saw that Edward Snowden came out in his robotic body and dropped some knowledge and answered some questions. Did that actually happen? Yeah, it did. Um, he wasn't there. He was some undisclosed location in Russia. But he appeared via a robot screen that had a video camera on it. And he came out and he did a little speech, answered some questions. That is very cool. I'll put a link to it in the show notes for people who are interested. He had a lot of interesting things to say, in my opinion. You can always check out the show notes at in-security.org slash EP018. Chris Hadfield also released his talk at, uh, from the TED conference. A talk on the nature of fear. Which is pretty awesome. 
I was also looking for the presentation that I said that I'd put into the show notes for chip and pin when I was in uh, DEFCON or Black Hat before. And I also came across one that was done by Adam Savage from Mythbusters all around failure. So I thought that that was interesting and watch that at work instead of doing work. Nice. Do you have any follow up this week? Uh, actually, there was something in the news recently that I've tacked on to the end of the show notes for chip and pin, but we didn't discuss it at all. And then we said chip and pin a lot, chip and pin, chip and pin, chip and pin in that episode. The, the show notes there are in dash security.org slash EP zero one six. Yes. And the article is tacked on to the end of the, the episode. What is the article in regards to the article is in regards to more information about the target breach that we had discussed uh, they came out with some more information as to what went down. So it turns out that Target has invested a whole bunch of money over a recent amount of years. Can't remember if they said it was like in the past five years or whatever. They've increased their security team from 30 people to 300 people. So tenfold increase in the amount of employees and 300 people for a security group is a lot. I'd imagine that a lot of people are in the operations center. They also spent a significant amount of money in purchasing these products, which would enhance their antivirus detection capability, intrusion detection capabilities. So they spent like 1.6 million on bringing that up to speed. And an interesting thing about that is that the advanced malware detection tool that they had actually triggered when the bad guys had hacked into their systems and was putting the malware there. So that's an interesting point. It was detected by the security operations center over in India. Notifications were sent across the pond to the people in the U S saying, go deal with this top priority item. And for whatever reason that went ignored and not just once there was several occurrences of this from the malware that were going across as they revised the malware. It obviously hit many thousands of systems to be able to achieve this. It, uh, yeah, it was a, a huge colossal failure in the response to the operational alert. So they had all of the infrastructure in place to notify them about the problem. It in fact worked flawlessly and notified them. And then they simply didn't act on the information. Right. So we always say that security is a process and the process wasn't followed. So security wasn't applied. Hmm. Yeah. It's a little disheartening. Um, regardless, there's some interesting information as to the side effects of that, of how much it costs them in fixing the systems afterwards in hiring these consulting firms to come in and piece together exactly what happened to offer up information protection for people's credit card numbers, you know, identity theft protection for the credit card holders. They were providing something like free credit evaluation results to people over the course of the next like couple of years or something, I think. Yeah, it was a year of free online credit monitoring or free identity monitoring, whatever the term is. Yeah, so it ends up that the breach also cost them something like 
80 million dollars to deal with plus those action class action lawsuits which haven't been dealt with yet because people basically ignored alerts from the 1.6 million dollar system that it took to put in place plus whatever it cost to employ 300 uh, security in- individuals so i guess the moral of this story is if you have security systems in place listen to what they have to say yes and if you're a security professional act professionally do your job so what do we have on the docket for this week this week we're going to discuss the security conference that i was out and the lessons that i learned from that conference it's a uh, cansec west was the conference that was held over in the vancouver area between march 12th and 15th and it's interesting because it's the only conference that i've been to other than a B-sides, that is a single track, which means there's only one room for everybody to be in. If you don't want to be there, you can go outside and talk to the vendors. Or in this case, there was an event that was put on where Microsoft, Google, HP, and a whole bunch of other companies put up money so that if the hackers that were attending the conference compromised their systems and disclosed how they compromised it, they had this bug bounty system. So they would pay out a whole bunch of money and they had a pot available of up to $4 million, I believe. And out of that, uh, people walked away cumulatively with 1.2 million, I believe. Is this the pwn to own contest? It is a combination of pwn to own, uh, ponium, which is put on by the Google folks and, uh, pwn for fun which was a charity for the Canadian Red Cross that was put out. I read a little bit about the Pwn for Fun in which Google and, stop me if I get this wrong, Google and HP Correct. were both competing against one another. They had their security teams compete against each other to see who could compromise the other's system. Uh, I, I believe that Microsoft was thrown under the bus. Okay. So it wasn't just each other's system. Oh, right. So who could compromise a system? And then they weren't allowed to use any attacks that had been previously disclosed and just not fixed or anything that had been told to them. They had to use their own attacks. And then whoever won ended up donating the charity in their name. Nice. Yep. So there was that. And that was interesting because as you go into this hotel, the most furthest down basement is the ballroom. And that's where... You know, all the presentations are going on. That's where lunch is served. That's the registration desk and the vendor area. And then a floor above that, there's like a room that's probably, I don't know, 30 feet by 70 feet long. And it's just got a whole bunch of desks and people crunching away on their computers. And you just walk by it and you go like it could just be people checking email or not. But in actuality, these people are dropping zero day. They're they're customized built exploits for systems that people don't know the vulnerabilities exist to. They're creating these and attacking these fully patched live systems and succeeding for the most part. There's one scenario, which was a fully patched Windows 8.1 system running IE 11 and Microsoft Emmet, the Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit or whatever it's called. And uh, that one actually made it through unscathed. 
but everybody else pretty much fell. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yep. So it just goes to show you, if you listen to the show and implement the hardening stuff that we suggest, you too could get out unscathed from these cutting edge hacking techniques. And the conference itself, the the information that was being sent across was pretty much all the most technical information I've ever seen and dedicated to this cutting edge research in information security. There was a, a couple people that didn't meet that bar. One of them was the Honorable Diane Finley of Public Works and Government Services of Canada, who completely got the whole conference, I don't know, ideology wrong and started talking about militarizing Canada and purchasing military equipment and talked about the shipbuilding contracts and obviously did not take questions, at least from the audience. There was a press scrum that came. They put up the Canadian flags behind her. It was basically a travesty. People were stuck there for like 20 minutes watching this person, this conservative, bash the liberals and just use it as a political platform, not at all catering to what was there. I spoke to the uh, conference organizer afterwards, you know, saying just generally how I've been enjoying the conference. And he actually apologized for uh, for the this politician lady having uh, wasted everybody's time and completely missed the opportunity to engage with the information security community. But, you know, what are you going to say? Politician doesn't understand computer security and water is still wet. I mean, it's just it's just the way it is, sadly. There was one other one that kicked it off that was actually pretty general. It was this guy, Jacob West, who's the CTO of HP Enterprise Security. And he had some pretty cool points, uh, which are pretty well known within the security echo chamber. But since we're trying to cater to people outside of that, uh, one thing that was interesting that he had mentioned is in 2013, there were 20% more breaches that had occurred than there were in 2012. It resulted in a 30% higher cost overall for the breaches. And then he said that the estimation is that in 2014, 40% of the information security jobs out there will go unfilled because they can't find qualified people to fill those positions. Just the demand is going to be way too great. The demand is there right now. People aren't getting trained properly at school, which was another one of his points. Of the top nine university programs in the U.S. that cater to computer technology, computer science undergraduate programs for nine of these universities, they actually don't have any mandatory courses on information security. And they only have one to two mandatory courses that contain a module for information security. It's just not being taught in school. So are there universities that were supported? Were there ones that were endorsed? Ones that had proper programs? These are the most renowned computer science programs out of the universities in the United States. He didn't actually point to the ones that might have a better program. I don't even know know if he looked into that, but he did some quick research and found that there was a bunch that just don't teach the subject that have the most people going to it. He did mention that there was optional courses that people could take at these universities that did cover the subject. But, you know... If somebody could take maybe a a language course or a history course over 
a security course, maybe they would. I don't know. Then the mobile, all of the three major mobile platforms were discussed. There was a, a group that presented on uh, their research into the BlackBerry 10 platform that runs on QNX. And it was basically a very good discussion on how these people do their reverse engineering and look at, discuss the tools to do the reverse engineering, the process that they went behind. And they didn't actually, you know, drop any zero day on the platform. They didn't, they didn't release an exploit because they're still working on getting to know the platform better. But they did come up with some interesting topics around how the security policies enforced and what it means uh, for the new BlackBerry platform. So the three major mobile providers or platforms are BlackBerry, Android, and Apple? Correct. So BlackBerry running QNX? QNX. It's a micro kernel. And then Apple running iOS. Right. So you talked about the the presenter talking about iOS uh, 7 as the latest version he had discovered a vulnerability within the way that the pseudo random number generator works, which is the thing that makes up the random numbers that are used for a bunch of the features like the address space layout randomization. So there's a problem in that where you can get the same number over across multiple boots of the device and you can find out what the seed is that's used for the random number generation and leverage that to do things like so remember back when we were talking about the protection against buffer overflows we were talking about the protection of buffer overflows we discussed how you can do address space layout randomization and what that does is that actually randomizes where in memory the program's located but the program itself still needs to reference its memory locations so how it does this is it uses something called a virtual memory map virtual page table and this is the lookup process that it uses as a relative place only the actual kernel itself knows where the base memory table is and can allocate it correctly so with this vulnerability you can undo that randomization and obfuscation of where the memory is actually located so conceptually you can use this later on to uh, attack a memory location and do a buffer overflow. But right now it's just conceptual. So they're talking about the problems with the pseudorandom number generator that creates the initial randomness within the, the whole operating system. So to try and paraphrase, if the memory allocation is not in actuality random or the randomness to it can easily be deduced, then that makes it false random which makes it easier to break right essentially it's not random enough and therefore you can use that to attack the operating system and its protections and basically remove the protections that the operating system is putting into place right so according to this guy who, who did a whole bunch of research and presentations on ios version 6 he says that the race that they were in to come out with a new product actually weakened the security of the product and that they tried to increase the security but just did it using too many known weak products that the end result is the product they put out itself was weak clear 
Yep, clear. And then, of course, the Android platform. People are talking about that, doing some security research. They've developed a, a few interesting tools. One is to find uh, known vulnerable programs that are susceptible to to attack or malicious programs that are leveraging the ability to attack. And then they've installed this pretty much root kit. So this, this, their product, you need to run it as root. So you need to have rooted your Android phone to be able to run it. And what it does is it'll intercept these system calls and prevent a malicious software from taking over your phone. They also discovered a way that you can manipulate the Android application package, which is called an APK file, you can manipulate it in such a way that you can actually change the content, but the checksum that gets done on the APK is the same. So it's kind of like what we'll discuss, the uh, failures in MD5 where collisions occur. Then there was a bunch of other stuff that was quite over my head, but very interesting conceptually, where the folks at MITRE and the folks at Intel were doing presentations along the line of the BIOS is the next frontier for persistent system compromise. So that if you can infect the BIOS, you can ensure that every time the computer starts up, it gets infected, even if somebody reinstalls the operating system. Which makes sense. Right. And it's uh, there's a lot of protection that Intel is working on implementing in this space, but they are playing the cat and mouse game with themselves and trying to shake down all of the bugs even though they've you know, released some products. There was discussions on how to detect compromised BIOSes, which means they had to create a way of compromising the BIOS reliably at the same time. Like how you'd see that uh, what in an outbreak movie where the people had to create a terrible virus to be able to come up with an antidote for it. So it's the same type of concept. And the Intel guys were discussing about the UFI BIOS and UEFI and and the controls that are in place of that to ensure that the operating system is a trusted operating system before booting that and how to circumvent that also. So very interesting conversation in that space. So essentially they're currently developing the tools to seriously injure themselves and then trying to develop a way to stop it. Right. In essence, that that's true. And the reason why they're doing this is because there's already known bad BIOSes out there that compromise systems. And so they need a, a test environment type compromise so that they can catch up with the bad guys who are hiding the information. So they've developed ways of dumping the BIOS and to be able to reverse engineer actually compromised BIOSes already. Hmm. And they're also... Uh, detecting in the wild people who are attacking operating systems and they're trying to figure out how. And then next thing they know, the Intel guys who are the chip manufacturers are discovering that their UFI BIOS protection mechanism doesn't, uh, is circumventable because they've seen it in the wild. So they're also creating an inoculus test version for that. And the, they're talking about the attacks that are out there against direct memory access. Like if you had a compromised chip that was on like a network card that is given direct memory access that even bypasses some of the, the kernel controls for it, that's another venue for attack. So they're looking at 
how to ensure that that's a protected mechanism. A lot of really in-depth, like I said, over my head research being done in this space. When I get into the technical details of firmware revisions and bugs within that, it's just, it's too great. But the concept is cool. And I think that our listeners would understand the concepts. Of course, if you don't think that we're just wasting air, send us an email to feedback at in-security.org. Valuable, valuable air. Then there was a lot of discussions around uh, browser security, specifically Microsoft ones. Uh, We discussed that there was a blue hat prize that Microsoft was giving out for people to be able to find and suggest new ways of either compromising fully patched systems or uh, coming up with suggestions as to effective ways of implementing controls that stop the return-oriented programming or ROP exploit techniques that are new cutting edge. So there was three or four presentations on the actual ROP type attacks and also some discussion on what can be due to prevent that. There was a two Microsoft Blue Hat Prize winners, I think position second place and third place winners that were there doing talks. So it was very cool, very cutting edge stuff. And uh, one interesting thing about ROP, the whole point of ROP is that it gets past the address space layout randomization. And it does this by breaking down the memory into a predictable way so that you can put your malicious code in executable memory versus non-executable memory and that you can decipher the memory allocation of where it needs to go. And there's a bunch of different techniques to do that that were discussed within this. One was, and stop me if this is going over your head, Matt. Did they have to wear the blue hats during their talk? There was no actual blue hat. Uh, The blue hat is in reference to a white hat being a good guy, a black hat being a malicious person, a gray hat kind of straddling the line like some of these researchers could be considered. And then Microsoft just used blue hat for whatever reason. There was a technique that, like we had said, with that uh, PNG files header information where there was malicious code stuck in the header information and there was malicious code being called up by JavaScript. And you could use those two layers combined to bypass antivirus detection. There's also ability to do the same thing with JavaScript and C code running on the system so that you can find and create this executable space in memory and then slip in the code that needs to execute through JavaScript. So it's this kind of separation between the two that is actually quite effective. There was also uh, one guy who humorously edited out a whole bunch of his slides because Microsoft had cut out a bunch of his content because he was a winner of this prize. And so he wasn't allowed to disclose the stuff that's not fixed yet. He said that without even using ROP or shellcode, you can use an attack against Microsoft's Internet Explorer 11 or 10. Uh, with one extra byte of information in the right location, you can enter God mode. Huh. So I, I took that as a hint and wrote that down. And uh, some of these people were talking about techniques to actually detect the ROP gadgets being used. So ROP actually clobbers some of the memory spaces scattered throughout a program. And 
you can see returns being placed onto the executable programs area. And if the return is not immediately following a call function, then you know that there's memory manipulation going on there, that that should not have been placed there to begin with. So if you have a a process for monitoring the memory for that, then you can actually do an early detect and prevent. So these are potentially things that we're going to see implemented in the future? Hopefully. Hopefully Microsoft takes these things to, to heart, especially the two people that they've awarded money for. They said through the Blue Hat Prize that people are allowed to speak about the, the vulnerabilities. They're actually allowed to even develop and sell on their own products that address these vulnerabilities, even though they've been awarded like $50,000 each, which is pretty cool, I think, of Microsoft to do that. Just Microsoft takes all of the detailed information, interviews the people, and then tries to develop their own product that fixes it as well right. or removes the vulnerability to begin with. So other platforms that might be affected by it, say a Linux or Mac or whatever, they are off to have to deal with it themselves and Microsoft's given this head start. Another person had this technique of running programs through a virtual memory installation So they could do a shadow copy of the memory and then change the way that the program works to be non-executable and then run through that and see if a memory leak exists within it. And that's actually another way of detecting if uh, there's ROP problems. And it's also a way of detecting new features that are added to new systems. There was another presentation on leveraging big data to find malicious software by doing basically the same technique. And then something on race conditions, which there's, I guess there's a new term for that called concern, concurrency bugs. So I felt good that there was uh, some content being covered that we've covered on the show. There was also a reference way back to uh, the Morris worm that started off the buffer overflow craze. So, you know, I, I felt like I'm not so out of touch if other people are talking at this, you know, cutting edge hacking techniques uh, and mitigation conference around around this you're still valuable max yay i'm not too old yet oh there was another very cool one on um, data visualization these guys over at open dns open dns is a service much like google's service at 8.8.8.8 which is a dns that's from a quote-unquote trustworthy source that everybody can use because what we've talked about in the past is if you can compromise somebody's DNS entries, you can reroute anybody to a malicious site that just looks like a legitimate site. So bank.com is actually maliciousbank.com, right? So these guys over at OpenDNS offer the service up freely as far as I know to at least individuals, maybe for corporations, it's, they have a, some sort of purchase thing. So they've developed this system for being able to visualize uh, DNS resolutions and interrelationships for these dynamically bad people. So one of the examples that they brought forward was the CryptoLocker malware, which will, if you get infected with this malware, reach out to a CryptoLocker DNS domain name and say, Give me the asymmetric key so that I can encrypt this person's hard drive and you maintain the private key on the other side from this malware person. And then we'll extort the person saying, 
you know, you have to pay me this amount of money to get access to your documents on your local hard drive back. So fairly nefarious malware. It's pretty big right now or was. I can't remember if I read an article about Microsoft taking these guys down or or the FBI working with people in other countries to take these guys down. But there's a lot of systems that are out there that are fielding this request. And so these guys at OpenDNS had developed this technique to visualize the relationship between domain names based on something called a DGA algorithm, which looks at the letter composition of a domain name to see if it's a real valid domain name or not. If it's a throwaway domain name for these people to extort folks with, and then they've mapped this interrelationship back and forth visually. They've created this model so that you can see what country these nodes are in and the relationship with each other. And they use this actually to prevent people who use the open DNS service from having their files encrypted in the first place by this crypto locker malware. Hmm. Yeah, I thought that that was insanely cool. And as far as, you know, being able to map out who's connecting to our website, download our podcast, you know, it's something that we could use as well to, to visually map out the relationships. Right. Absolutely. The talk that I totally geeked out at was this one guy who was discussing Bluetooth low energy, which is also known as Bluetooth smart which is in the latest generation of Android and iOS phones and a whole bunch of fitness products. Apparently that's the big user of this technology right now. And so he was able to intercept uh, using this hundred dollar device called an Uber tooth one. He's able to uh, decode the information that's being sent across. He's able to inject packets from the Bluetooth protocol and through all this research, just did this wicked presentation on, you know, how to track individuals as they go along, how to uh, force renegotiations between the, the devices so that you can actually get uh, men in the middle for the for the crypto keys, develop tools to break the cryptography for Bluetooth. If you can see that initial communication back and forth and he's just done a bunch of really cool stuff and he's created his own fuzzer Uh, a fuzzer is a application that sends random junk of various lengths to try to force a a program to crash so he's uh he's developed a fuzzer for bluetooth another guy has developed this fuzzer for radius which is this uh protocol for connecting to a corporate network like remotely it's just Things the protocol that works in the back end for things like VPN connection and Citrix, and uh, it's you know it's it's used in the corporate world everywhere. So he he was doing research into Radius. So there was just a whole bunch of very interesting, very cutting edge research that some's already bearing fruit, some's about to bear fruit, and you know it's really cool to see all these techniques that are being put into place. And the people there are fantastic too. I mean, it's a lot of like chip manufacturers and emergency response uh, type people for information security stuff. There's a guy from the Department of Energy I met. Uh, There's a guy who did the presentation on chip and pin, which I posted in the other one that I met, who was very cool and actually gave you a reprogrammable RFID card. He did. That was awesome. Because he asked and I asked him, 
Yep. Very, very, very cool stuff. So my impressions were amazing, very technical, and not really something that I can implement for work. But thanks for sending me work. Eight on 10 would go again. Yep. And then I got to spend some time with you, which was fantastic as well. That was pretty fun. That was pretty good. We watched some hockey. We played some friendship. Yep. I got to mess around with your mixing board and make this podcast take longer to figure out what what I'd switched around. We did a recording. Oh, yeah. May or may not exist. Have you have you played with that one at all? I'm going to be doing that probably tomorrow afternoon. Cool. And I'm going to be working on the crypto episodes. Other than that, did you have anything else that you wanted to to cover today? No, that's probably more than enough. (laughs) I had fun. I think it was a good episode. So did I. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to wrap this episode up. Awesome. Sounds good. Let's call it a week. Until then, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Look forward to next time. Take care, Matt.